the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Moshe Malevsky, uh, who is the author of a new book uh, called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Welcome to the show, Moshe. Hi there. Thank you. Let's just start a little bit with your background um, and why you felt necessary to write this book. Well, my day job is teaching undergraduate and graduate students here at York University in Toronto, and I teach in the business school. And uh, over the years, I've been getting quite a number of questions, both from the public as well as the media and many, many of our graduates and students, about personal finance matters. And I thought that it was about time to write something for an audience that's broader than just the academics we usually write for in the ivory tower. Okay. And so um, is this your first book? No, I've actually written a couple of books that aimed at various audiences. Before this one, I'd written a textbook uh, about two years ago for retirement income planning, and I've done a couple of monographs uh, for uh, financial analysts. But in the last few years, this has certainly uh, been uh, the, the first personal finance book I've written. Let's just kind of set the, the stage for the problem here, uh, which is uh, retirement. and People, uh, I guess, living longer and not having the kind of income they expected. Just kind of give me a sense of the dimensions of the problem. Yeah, well, you know, clearly we're seeing a configuration of a whole number of events here. Uh, not, not, none of them are working in the favor of individual investors. Uh, uh, number one is obviously the incredible volatility that we're seeing in the stock market. Uh, you know, last, last week the market was down 20%. Today, the market's up 5 or 6%. Who knows what will happen tomorrow? So this incredible volatility in the value of people's investments. And, you know, for many years, stocks and bonds and, and, and these investment accounts were really things that people held for supplementary reasons. This really wasn't their retirement nest egg, per se. It was something they did on the side, and if it went up, they had more. If not, they didn't. Uh, because they had defined benefit pensions. So for many years, our parents and our grandparents retired with defined benefit pensions that essentially guaranteed them an income for the rest of their life as long as they lived. And, and, and this pension would be a function of how long they worked at a company. And, and many people still get these defined benefit pensions. But the vast majority of baby boomers who are about to move into retirement, and certainly my students, and the next generation of employees will not have these defined benefit pensions. They're going to have to rely on the performance of their investments, their own nest egg, their 401Ks and 403Bs, to generate a retirement income. So we have a configuration of a number of events here, the incredible volatility in the market. These pension plans are closing down and shifting the responsibility for retirement to individuals, and the world is a much more complicated place than it was 10 or 20 years ago, which leaves the individual with a lot of responsibility. Supposedly, when the ERISA law was put in in 1974, that was to make it easier for companies to offer pensions and to make pensions um, more widely available. Why did it kind of have the exact opposite effect? Well, you know, one of the uh, objectives of ERISA that did work out very well was to put uh, restrictions in place in terms of what pension plans can do with their investments. Uh, the, the idea of having to fund an investment, uh, the idea of a guarantee, the PBGC, 
that guarantees people's pension if something happens to the company. And over the years, they've taken over and continue to pay pensions. So in that sense, it's done its intent. It, it's done what it should. On the other hand, what's happening is that a lot of companies are now realizing that this is a responsibility that they just don't want. In many cases, it makes them uncompetitive. You know, a lot of employees themselves say that they don't really need a defined benefit pension or want a defined benefit pension when they're relatively young. They're going to work in a number of different companies, maybe different countries over the course of their lives. It's kind of an old economy way of compensating people. And, and all of this has led to the fact that less and less companies are offering it. You know, one of the statistics that I cite in the book, uh, Are You a Stock or a Bond?, is that literally every 10 days to two weeks, another relatively well-known company announces that it is freezing or closing down its defined benefit pension plan, literally every 10 days to two weeks. And what that means is that we have every couple of weeks a new group of employees that are sitting there scratching their head and saying, okay, what does this mean for my retirement? What, just give us some of the numbers. What were the percentage of workers, full-time workers, that had defend, uh, defined benefit plans, say, in 1985, and, and where is that? today and where do you think it might be going in the next five years? Well, it, it's pretty interesting how it's almost inverted itself uh, over the years. When we take a look at, you, you mentioned earlier, the, uh, the passage of ERISA, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. So around that time, the number of pension plans out there, the number of uh, individuals that were covered by those kinds of pensions, was roughly about uh, 75 to 80 percent of full-time employees had uh, these defined benefit pensions. And now when we front forward to the year 2004, so let's front forward now 20 years, that percentage has dropped to about 30 or 35 percent. Uh, you know, if you want, you want to think of it, uh, you know, in, in a different way, when you actually take a look at the number of defined benefit pension plans that are actually around, they've gone down by literally two-thirds over a 20 to 30-year period. So although there still are many defined benefit pension plans out there, and many of them are very healthy and will be around for many years to come, when we take a look at the bulk of retirement investing, they're sitting in IRAs, trillions of dollars, and in defined contribution plans, trillions of dollars. And there, the stock market is a lot more important to the individual. And what is the outlook? I mean, five years from now, what percentage might that be down to? It's, it's difficult to predict these things. I, I would say that uh, if we continue to see the current volatility in the market, oddly enough, it might actually push employers in the other direction to say, you know what, we should start offering some alternative and have a defined benefit plan available. Or you might be seeing hybrid plans offered. But I, I, I can tell you this. When you look at the most prestigious companies in the U.S. today, in fact, Watson Wyatt did a survey on this, uh, and they've tracked over the years the most prestigious companies in the U.S. 20 years ago, they offered virtually all new employees a defined benefit pension. And now when you look at it, the percentage is somewhere probably between 20 to 25 percent. Seventy-five percent of these companies are not offering it. So I'm talking about the, you know, the, the Googles of the world and the Facebooks. And, and, you know, these are the new economy companies, and these are companies that many of the graduates want to work at. They're not offering the defined benefit plan. Uh, they're offering a defined contribution, a, you know, a 401k plan where they match and they have to invest it themselves. So th this is certainly something that's going to continue. I don't see this reversing itself anytime soon. And you also talk about the public sector, and you talk particularly about the Florida pension experiment. What is happening in the public sector as far as pensions? 
Well, in the, in the public sector, we, we tend to see a lot more coverage in the DB space than we see in the defined contribution space. What that means is that a teacher, a fireman, a police officer, state and local employees tend to be part of a defined benefit pension plan, and they do have this guarantee retirement income for the rest of their life when they retire, although some states, and in many cases some cities, are actually toying with the idea of freezing it for new employees and only allowing new employees to enter into a defined contribution plan, and the existing employees, people that are there already, uh, will continue to have their defined benefit pension plan. The, the, the case of Florida that you mentioned, they actually now give employees a choice when they enter into uh, employment at the state of Florida. Do they want to participate in the defined benefit plan or the defined contribution plan? And they actually have the chance to change their mind later on if they feel that one was better or worse than the other one. So we're seeing some of that as well, choices that individuals can make as to which one they want to participate in. So it's very, very different in the public sector versus the private sector. So how, when people have that choice, what kind of choices are Florida public servants making? Well, you know, this obviously uh, you know, depends on the market environment. Uh, I, I know that initially uh, when this was offered, many of the employees said that they would like to stay in the defined benefit pension plan, especially the older ones. And uh, I can understand it. They like the guarantee. They like the income that they can't outlive. They appreciate the fact that they have uh, a pension. In many cases, they're going to get inflation adjustments as well. Uh, the newer employees, the ones that are joining initially, uh, those with a shorter work horizon, you know, they plan to work here for a couple of years, maybe work somewhere else. I could understand why they are actually choosing a defined contribution plan or an investment plan because they don't intend to stay there for the next 20 or 30 years. So uh, this is a situation that pension, defined benefit pension plans are kind of deteriorating and disappearing all over the place. So what is your agenda for this book for people to understand what they need to do in that kind of environment? I, I think that if, if I could summarize, the, the, the main idea here is that if you are now in a pension plan where you have to make some decisions about how to invest it and how to manage that over the course of your life, you want to take into account something that I call human capital, which is the nature of your job, uh, the riskiness of your job, the level of income from your job, and to take account of your human capital when you are investing your financial capital. So the main idea of the book is to teach people how to appreciate and value the human capital that they have, which in many cases is a lot more valuable than the financial capital that they have, especially early on in life. So, for example, in the first chapter, you talk about U Inc. Maybe just describe that concept a little bit and how that ties into human capital. Sure. So, the, the way I like to motivate or introduce uh, this idea of human capital is that people should think of themselves or consider themselves as a small company. And a company has assets and a company has liabilities, and the difference between the two would be their equity or net worth. So the idea is to get people thinking about their individual company, U Inc., and to value all the assets on their balance sheet. I actually do this exercise with my students on the first day of class where I ask them to take out a blank sheet of paper and to write down all the uh, assets that they have and all the liabilities that they have. And, you know, unfortunately, in today's day and age, students tend to have a lot more liabilities than they have assets. They have student loans. They have credit card debt. Uh, they have uh, payments that they're making to the university, to the colleges, to their roommates. And when they do that exercise, they say to me, hey, I, I have much more liabilities than I have assets. Well, what does this mean? Am I technically bankrupt or insolvent? And my response to them is you're missing the most valuable asset 
on you Inc.'s balance sheet, and that is your human capital. And the human capital, of course, is the present value, the discounted value of all the wages and the salary that you're going to earn for the next 30, 40, possibly 50 years of your working life. Remember, I'm talking to a 20-year-old. They then do that exercise. They add up all the projected wages, and there are careful statistics out there on what people earn their first year out of college, second year, tenth year, and they end up with numbers in the millions of dollars. And I then tell them, your financial capital might be very slim when you're 20 years old, but your human capital is worth millions and millions of dollars. Start investing your financial capital by taking into account the risk characteristics of your human capital. So that's really a new idea for a lot of people because they don't see their own worth to some extent, I guess. But they don't, and, and to be honest, in this environment, I find it very encouraging for me personally to take a look at my human capital as well as my financial capital. And, you know, financial capital has taken a big hit over the last couple of months, but our human capital, if you actually think of it, is actually doing quite well because when interest rates decline, the value of human capital for most of us tends to increase. But the, the point is, you are worth more than that statement you're getting from the broker or from the advisor. There's a lot more on your personal balance sheet. Don't get depressed by the smaller financial capital. Human capital is a lot more. Very good. Okay, I'm speaking with Moshe Malevsky, who's got a new book out called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. And we'll be back after this. Internet's only all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. What can you tell me about Skills USA? Skills USA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. What can you tell me about Skills USA? Skills USA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? 
Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Moshe Malevsky, uh, who is a professor at the University of uh, York in, in uh, Toronto. Uh, he's come out with a new book called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Welcome back to the show, Moshe. Thank you. We were talking about the whole idea of human capital uh, a little bit, and, and to some extent you talked this, this is in a life cycle, that there's a wealth accumulation phase and a kind of risk management phase as to how you're using your, your human capital. Maybe talk about that a little bit. In life, uh, the vast majority of your wealth is sitting in human capital form. This is the value of the wages and salary you're going to earn for the next 30 or 40 years of your life. So you're much wealthier than you think. Uh, the financial capital is a relatively small portion. So the key is to manage the human capital and the financial capital jointly as you age, as you move through the life cycle. So let's think about this early on in life. When you are trying to figure out how to manage your investments, uh, your financial capital, that would be your 401k, your IRA, your investments, you want to pick an asset allocation that matches or in a sense takes into account what your human capital looks like as well. So if your human capital is more of a bond or bond-like, your financial capital should be invested more in stock, vice versa in the other direction. What do I mean by bond-like human capital? So the example I like to give is what I do for a living. I'm a teacher. As a teacher, we have what uh, many in the industry call a tenure, or essentially it's a, it's a type of job security. They may not pay teachers very well, but our jobs tend to be a lot more secure than someone working in the financial services industry, for example. My human capital is somewhat of a bond or bond-like because my salary tends to be adjusted for inflation over time. It's like a coupon on a bond. I still have a defined benefit pension, the pensions I mentioned earlier. Because my human capital is relatively safe, I call it a bond, my financial capital can afford to take a lot more risk, 
which is why my investments, my retirement savings, tend to be invested entirely in equities, entirely in stock. In fact, I'm leveraged into stock because I have so much bond exposure already in my human capital. Now, granted, that's an incredibly risky portfolio, and the last couple of weeks have not been pretty, but that financial capital is a very small portion of my balance sheet. My human capital is worth a lot more, and overall it tends to be balanced and diversified. The flip side of that is, is for example, some of my students that want to work in the financial services industry. I teach in an MBA program. Many of my students that are in their late 20s or perhaps early 30s want to graduate and work on in, as an investment banker or on Wall Street or in the financial services industry, they're also young and eager and ambitious and have many, many years to go ahead of them. They have a lot of human capital on their balance sheet, but it's riskier than my human capital because they're going to be working in the financial services industry. Their bonus, their salary, their wages are going to be linked to the performance of the financial services industry. So I tell them, because you have so much stock in your human capital, make sure that your financial capital is invested safely and in bonds, things that don't fluctuate as much. Even though you're young and you have time before retirement, your overall balance sheet should, in fact, consist of a mixture of both. Hence the title of the book, Are You a Stock or a Bond? If you're a bond, you can afford to take more stock risk, vice versa, in the other direction. So that's the life cycle approach to investing. Is this different in the current economy where uh, you know, jobs are not only growing, but there's a lot of layoffs going on, particularly in financial services, but other areas as well. Uh, is it harder for people to realize their human capital if there are going to be fewer jobs available, they're paying less, the benefits are less, that kind of thing? I, I think that the value of human capital uh, in this environment is, is a little bit lower than it was uh, five years ago when, when, or four years ago when things were doing a lot better. That said, it's not just the amount of human capital that you have, but the industry it's linked to, as well as how it fluctuates or moves with the overall stock market. And, you know, I like to joke that I'm a bond. My financial capital is in stock. The reason my human capital has actually done well over the last couple of years is because of the fact that interest rates have actually gone down. And we know that when interest rates go down, bond prices tend to go up. So human capital and the element of human capital that's a bond is actually increased. So, that, you know, there's a subtle combination there between the economy turning down, but at the same time interest rates going down, which means that the value of human capital increases. The important thing is to make people aware of the existence of this human capital, that that's the most valuable asset on their balance sheet. And that's why I spend a lot of time in the book talking about people that should be insuring their human capital, buying life insurance insurance or disability insurance or unemployment insurance is about protecting human capital. It's, in a sense, a portfolio argument. It's about hedging your human capital, and uh, people have to take that very seriously early in life. Let's talk about insurance a little bit. That's your Chapter 2, which is insurance as a hedge for human capital. Uh, do you find a lot of people don't have enough insurance, and they're not really insuring their human capital, and therefore something goes wrong, and, and uh, they get into financial trouble because of that? You know, I, I find it's very odd. Early in life, people tend to be underinsured and underappreciate the value of insurance. And then later on in life, it tends to invert itself, where they tend to come across someone who sells them more insurance, and they get uh, more than they actually need, so that by the time they retire, they tend to be overinsured in certain things especially as it comes to life insurance. So my response to you would be that maybe on average we're okay, but at the extremes we're not. So what kind of uh, calculations do you say people should go through to figure out how much insurance they need at different ages and different stages of the human capital development? 
Well, I, I would say that uh, the, the first thing they should do is get a rough estimate of what their uh, salary looks like over the next uh, couple of years and, uh, you know, to project that out and, and get some sort of upper bound estimate for what the value of human capital is. Uh, they certainly want to have that as an upper bound. Uh, at a lower bound, at a bare minimum, it should be the expenses that they have, the liabilities that they have. And this, of course, depends on uh, the family. So do they have dependents? Are they married? Uh, if you're single and you have no dependents, there really is no need to insure your human capital uh, because of the fact that over the, you know, at, at this point, there's no one that really loses from a loss of human capital. I know it sounds glib, uh, but on the other hand, someone who's married and has children and has dependents, if something happens to their human capital, the family is at a loss, so you want to protect the family. You're saying there, there are differences between being optimistic and pessimistic uh, on your chances of dying, and, and that should affect how much insurance you get, is that correct? I, I don't think so. You know, this, this isn't a bet. I, you know, this isn't about how healthy you feel, and the healthier you think you are, the less insurance you need. I, I really think this is a risk management question. What is your liability? What does your exposure look like? Uh, will your family be at risk if something happens to you or if you're unable to provide an income? It should be a risk management question, or as I title it in the book, a hedge, as opposed to some sort of speculative move where you're trying to outguess whether or not you're going to need the insurance. And then you have a whole discussion of what should you insure, uh, comparing the magnitude and probability of, of needing insurance. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, we're faced with so many insurance decisions in our life, and I, I point this out. You know, when you go and you get an airline ticket and you're asked whether you want to travel insurance, that's an insurance decision. When you go and buy a car or you buy a stereo, or you buy a DVD, and you're asked, do you want uh, an extended warranty plan? That's insurance. We're bombarded with insurance decisions every day, and what I'm trying to do is make some sense of who should and shouldn't insure, and my attitude to it is it should depend on two things. It should depend on the probability of something going wrong, and it should depend on the magnitude of something going wrong. And the only time you buy insurance is when the probabilities are very, very small, and the magnitudes are very large. What that means is that you should only purchase insurance against things that have a devastating impact on your balance sheet, on your portfolio, and only in cases when the probability is relatively small. And uh, that's how you should approach the insurance decision. So as an example, life insurance, the probability might be very, very small, but the magnitude of a loss is enormous. The family loses its source of human capital. So obviously you want to ensure that you want to have life insurance and disability insurance and maybe critical illness insurance to protect the family against that extraordinary magnitude of event. In contrast, an extended warranty plan, you know, if something happens to that stereo or that DVD player or that iPod, at worst you'll have to buy another one that's $200, $300. It's not pleasant, but it's not devastating. I don't think that should be insured. And do you find that people tend to buy the wrong insurance or, or not? too much or, or too much? I mean, they're, they're not doing it right the way you would look at it? I, I think that it tends to be driven too much by emotion and not enough by the rationality of risk management. You're at the checkout counter and you're paying $100 for something and they say, hey, another $10 and, and it's an extended warranty. And then if something breaks, you can always come back. And you're already paying so much, why don't you pay a little bit more? And I just don't think people are, are looking at this rationally. If they took all the money that they saved from all the extended warranties that they decide not to buy, and they put that in a side fund, a rainy day fund, that rainy day fund would be there for when something does break and they tap into it 
to buy the replacement or to fix the product. So I think that too many people insure things that have a very, very small magnitude of loss uh, for psychological reasons as opposed to any rational economic reasons. Okay, we're going to go to a break. I'm speaking with uh, Moshe Malevsky, uh, who's uh, got a new book out called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Uh, The publisher of this book is FT Press, Financial Times Press. And we'll be back after this. Line in business. Voice America business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. Grow profit. And grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. SkillsUSA can help. What is SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA is life-changing. SkillsUSA is awesome. SkillsUSA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. SkillsUSA is amazing. SkillsUSA is motivating. SkillsUSA specifically prepares you for the workforce. SkillsUSA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. SkillsUSA allows students to connect with business and industry, to manage their education, and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world, and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at SkillsUSA.org. Internet's only all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Moshe Malevsky, who's a professor at uh, York uh, College, York University in uh, Toronto. Uh, he's also done a book called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Welcome back to the show, Moshe. Thank you. Uh, before we go on, uh, just tell people how they can find out about the book and maybe if you have a website, they can contact you as well. 
Sure. Well, books, uh, as usual, can uh, be ordered from the Amazons and Barnes and Nobles of the world. But uh, our website at the university, uh, where people can link to more information about the book, is www.ifid.ca. Uh, IFID stands for Individual Finance Insurance Decisions. .ca, and that's Canada. And uh, we have a research center here that's devoted to personal finance and insurance and, and debt management and investment management where uh, they can read a lot more about this. Terrific. Okay, you have a chapter saying debt can be good at all ages. Now, most people would think debt is bad in all times. Why don't you talk about how debt can be good for some people at, at different ages? Yeah, debt uh, really is a, a demographic issue, and uh, I find that has a lot to do with... Uh, the person you're talking to, I, you know, I remember my grandparents lived in Cleveland for most of their life. I remember visiting them over the summers and having discussions with my grandfather who had lived through the Depression. And I'd asked him once to co-sign a loan on a credit card. I was in college and I needed someone to co-sign. And he just went into an hour-long tirade about how horrible debt is and people shouldn't be in debt and the objective is to get rid of debt. And, you know, I think he was right, obviously, when it comes to credit card debt. And that brings us to the definition of good debt versus bad debt. Uh, good debt is debt that actually helps you grow the assets on your balance sheet. Uh, in many cases, borrowing money uh, prudently, of course, to buy a house or, or borrowing money prudently to invest in, in, in a diversified portfolio makes sense in the long run. So really the difference between good debt and bad debt is how much interest are you paying on it and uh, what is the actual purpose of the debt? Are you consuming with the money or are you investing with the money? And uh, when you're get take on debt to uh, go on a trip or to buy another car or to uh, purchase a stereo uh, you know that obviously is not necessarily good debt and uh, the interest rates there tend to be higher as well uh... good debt is debt like uh, mortgage debt long-term fixed mortgage debt uh, debt to invest margin debt so the, the distinction between good debt and bad debt is very important and i really don't think that a financial goal is to eliminate or to get rid of debt uh, you know, it's, it's very, very odd how debt is used by corporations very, very differently than it is by individuals. And just one final comment on this. You know, corporations have a capital structure that involves a lot of debt. And, you know, companies use debt strategically. It's tax deductible. They can leverage up and buy good investments. I, I don't see why individuals should have as a goal to eliminate all debt. I think bad debt should be eliminated, but not all debt. Well, here we are in a time of dramatic deleveraging in the world economy and uh, a lot of people say that the reason we got into this trouble in the first place is t people took on too much debt of all kinds including mortgage debt which you say is good debt they took on home equity loans and adjust rate mortgages and credit card debt and student loans and health loans and all kinds of different things and, and now the implosion is as a result of the deleveraging of that debt is, is this not the right way to look at things? It is, and I think that's really where you have to look at the magnitude of the debt and the magnitude of the leverage as well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with buying a house with 25 or 30% or 40% down and borrowing 60% of the value of the house if you plan to live there for a long period of time and you take out a mortgage. I, I cannot believe that that is bad debt. What I do understand is bad debt is people that put down 1% or a quarter of a percent or nothing down and they borrow the entire value of the house, perhaps even with an adjustable rate mortgage. They leverage their personal balance sheet 50 to 1 or 100 to 1. That's obviously very bad debt. So, again, you have to take a look at the details. And I think that one of the things we're coming to realize in North America, whether it's in Canada or in the U.S., is that a 20 to 1 leverage ratio on a house may not make a lot of sense. 
maybe a 5 to 1 leverage ratio or a 3 to 1 leverage ratio is a more prudent way to go. And it is very rare throughout the world to see the high leverage ratios that we see in housing here. I teach part-time at a university in South America, and my students always chuckle when I tell them that in North America you can actually buy a house with only 1% of the value down. This is just stunning to them. To them, you have to put down 60 or 70% of the value of the house. You can borrow a fraction, but it has to be much less than the amount of equity you have, and only then will the bank give you a loan. Of course, that's the flip side that we're seeing now. People that borrowed way too much, even if it was good debt, but it was too much of it, and that's what created part of the problem. Okay, I put it all together. There's, you have a table uh, that talks about investment debt, life insurance and equity holdings, and whether you're a stock or a bond as a person. Can I just give a general idea of, of how you should, should uh, have allocation among those different things? Sure. So, you know, if you put this whole life cycle approach to investing together, there, there are really three moving parts as you move through the life cycle. Number one is the classification of human capital. What, what do you do? Do you work in the financial services industry? Then you're a financial services stock. Do you work as a teacher or a fireman or a police officer? Well, then maybe you're more of a bond in terms of human capital. If you work in natural resources, you're obviously going to be a stock linked to that industry. So your human capital is one part of the equation, very important component. The second part of the equation, the second component, is obviously going to be whether or not you have a long time to go until retirement or whether or not this is something that's imminent, coming very, very close. So it's the time horizon. And, of course, the third one is going to be the amount of leverage involved. So when you are young, if your financial portfolio is in a very, very safe instrument because your human capital is relatively risky, then you don't want to have too much leverage and you don't need as much life insurance as someone who's in the other direction. So in the table that you mentioned in the book, someone that's relatively young has a long time to go until retirement with a relatively safe bond-like human capital, they should have a lot more life insurance and they should feel comfortable taking on more leverage and borrowing money, even though that leverage over the long run is going to work out for them, they're going to reduce it over time, but the three of them have to be analyzed together. If there's one important takeaway from all of this, don't make decisions individually Take a look at the whole balance sheet and make it jointly. You also talk about the personal inflation and the retirement cost of living. You're saying a lot of people really underestimate how much it's going to, to take to live comfortably in retirement and how long they're going to be living. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, this came about from discussing with a lot of seniors uh, throughout the country uh, and literally around the world about retirement spending. And, and I found that there was some confusion. People would tell me that they plan to spend less in retirement so they didn't think they needed as much. But at the same time, what they didn't realize is that the items that they do spend on in retirement tend to inflate at a much higher rate than the inflation rate does. So, for example, the consumer price index in the last couple of years has hovered around 3 or 4%. But if you take a look at health care, medical expenses, long-term care, the cost of an assisted living facility, nursing homes, bulk prices of drugs, these are things that seniors tend to spend more money on. They have actually appreciated by much more than inflation. So their personal inflation rate is actually higher than the consumer price index, which is an average for everyone in the population. 
And the Bureau of Labor Statistics has recently introduced something called the Consumer Price Index for the Elderly, the CPIE, and consistently every single year that index tends to be higher than the regular Consumer Price Index. So my message here is, is that seniors should focus a lot more carefully on what their true inflation rate is and not be distorted or influenced by an inflation rate that's irrelevant to them. So what are the investment implications? That people have to save a lot more than they were expecting? I, I think that there are a number of implications there. First of all, I think that when you're looking at retirement income, you must take into account the fact that your income needs will be inflating over time at a rate higher than inflation, which is why I'm a very big fan of inflation-linked or cost-of-living-linked annuities that will continue to provide income at an increasing rate to adjust for inflation. I think people's portfolio should be geared more towards things that are inflation-sensitive in the upside. So I would invest personally a lot more in the medical industry, pharmaceutical industry, biotechnology if I were retired, partially as a hedge against medical expenses as opposed to any bet on whether that industry is going to outperform. So you really have to focus carefully on your liabilities, the rate at which they increase over time, and a portfolio that hedges those liabilities. You say as people get closer to retirement, uh, they face... Uh, a sequence of return risk uh, with their portfolio. Why don't you describe what that means? Yeah, the, the sequence of returns is exactly what we're experiencing now in the equity markets. And that is, one day the market's up, the other day the market's down, one month it's up, one month it's down. If you're buying and holding and you're not liquidating any investments and you're adding to that account because of the fact that you're still saving for retirement, it's going to have a very, very little impact, negligible impact on your accumulation value 20 or 30 years from now. But if you are already in retirement and you're withdrawing money because you have to maintain a standard of living or satisfy RMD requirements when you turn 70 or you're supplementing Social Security in your own pension, when you withdraw money when the market is down, the market could recover the next day, but you've already taken some funds out the impact of the sequence of return is disproportionate. The last time you want to lose money or the last time you want a bear market is around the period of retirement. And even though in the long run equity prices do go up, but in the short run when you're withdrawing, the sequence of return is going to have a disproportionate impact of your income. So a lot of people are saying don't realize that they don't really time uh, when they're going to be taking the money out appropriately because you have to time not only with your age, but with what's going on in the marketplace. If the market's going down, as you say, it, it hurts you more to take money out than when, when you take money out when the market's going up. Absolutely. So not only should they be more careful as to when they're withdrawing the money, I think the investment products that they should be buying uh, should be geared towards this new sequence of returns risk. Uh, you know, if I was in retirement, downside protection would be a lot more valuable and important to me uh, than it is when I'm in my 40s and I have 20 or 25 more years to go. Uh, and again, that's the sequence of return effect. Uh, the, the volatility may work in my favor when I'm adding money to the account, but it's the exact opposite uh, on the way down when you're withdrawing. It's a new type of risk that we're living through now as we speak. Uh, we can have a recovery uh, in two years from now. It can be, the S&P can be back where it was last October. But for people that were retired and withdrawing money, their portfolio will never recover. One product I hear a lot about are index annuities as a way of uh, dealing with that. Is that something you think is a good idea? So th there are many different types of annuities out there, and it's, it's, it's a, such a broad term. It's almost like saying the word fund or investment. Uh, you know, there are annuities that are linked to inflation or annuities that are linked to a cost of living, and those are essentially pensions. And, and I'm a big fan of pensions, and for people that don't have pensions, I tell them go out and create your own pension plan. Uh, there are other types of annuities which are meant more for tax-sheltered growth, tax-sheltered accumulation, uh, substitute 
uh, for investments where uh, you don't have to worry about capital gains and ordinary interest around the way. That, that's more of a savings instrument than it is an in- income instrument. So to answer your question, it really depends on the type of annuity. But if you are getting an income annuity or a lifetime annuity, I would certainly say that uh, in addition to credit risk and, and making sure your company will be solvent uh, 10 or 20 years from now, you also want to make sure that your income will keep up with the standard of living. Very good. I'm speaking with Moshe Malevsky, uh, whose new book is called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. And we'll be back after this. The Bottom Line in Business. Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, right here on Voice America Business. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a value-based approach to comprehensive wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road to financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Moshe Malevsky, uh, who's a professor at uh, York University in Toronto and also the author of a new book called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Welcome back to the show, Moshe. Thank you. creating the pension plan is important for people and you talk about product allocation is the new asset allocation what are some of the products that people should be using and how should they allocate them uh, in putting together their own pension plan I, I think that fundamentally when you get to retirement your wealth should be allocated across three types of products uh, and that is the way to finance a retirement and, and and you know two of those products are traditional and well understood people have used them for years that's basic mutual funds or or managed accounts or a portfolio of stocks and bonds, 
Just because you're in retirement doesn't mean you should abandon the equity market. I know it's a tough message to say right now, but when you think about longevity patterns and how long people are going to be living and spending in retirement and the odds of reaching triple digits, people should still have a diversified portfolio in retirement. That's one of the three components. The second component are pensions, defined benefit pensions that provide income for the rest of your life as long as you live, possibly inflation-adjusted. People that retire into a defined benefit pension have that already, and they satisfy that component. They've got the guaranteed lifetime income. If you don't, if you're retiring from a defined contribution plan or a 401k plan, or you're just trying to build your own nest egg, go out and get yourself a pension. Buy some sort of product, either from an insurance company or some other intermediary, that provides the same type of guaranteed income for the rest of your life as long as you live. Uh, you know, certainly periodic income that depends on the performance of interest rates or the stock market. That's the second of three components. Have a pension, have a basic mutual fund, or some sort of investment portfolio. The third and final component, and that's something that only recently has been developed and I think is equally important, is downside protection. Products that protect the downside. If markets decline, you don't lose more than a certain amount. If markets fall, you're guaranteed to at least get your money back. Or if markets continue in a bear path, you're guaranteed a certain amount of income regardless of market performance. And these type of guaranteed products exist in many different formats. They're all the way from put options that you can buy in an exchange to variable annuities with guarantees that you buy from an insurance company or structured products that you buy from an investment intermediary. The common denominator of all of these is that they provide you with downside protection. So if you go through what we just experienced and you're trying to withdraw money from a portfolio, at least you don't lose more than a certain amount. And Product allocation is about mixing those three ingredients, a pension, a basic mutual fund or investment account, and some sort of downside protection in the right proportions so that you have a sustainable income stream for the rest of your life. Early in life, the most important issue is the human capital versus financial capital. What do you do for a living? What's your human capital like? As you get into retirement, it's going to be much more about the product allocation and mixing your nest egg amongst these three different products. You also talk about how guarantees uh, make people feel more comfortable, uh, but they shouldn't have everything in guaranteed accounts. You're saying to some extent if people have a certain amount of their money in guaranteed assets, it allows them to take bigger risks. Is that the right Absolutely. Kind of I would start off by saying a third, a third, and a third. You know, A third of your income should be in some sort of pension-like instrument, a third of your income should be exposed to the equity markets at the lowest fee possible, and maybe a third of your income from some sort of guaranteed products. And then depending on your circumstances and your desires and your goals, you tinker with that third, third, third allocation and overweigh one and underweigh the other one. But I, I think the downside protection now is more important than ever because of what we've just gone through. What are you seeing happening as the stock market's been falling for the most part? Are people losing their long-term plans and, and making all kinds of short-term movements based on emotion? You know, I, it really depends on the type of investments that they have. Uh, you know, those that are very close to it tend to react. Uh, you know, these are checking their account values online a couple of times a day, and they're trading in and out. Uh, you know, financial advisors are telling me that some people are panicking, and they're calling their brokers and advisors up and saying, look, get me out. I've had enough. I can't tolerate this. And, you know, I feel bad for people that did this last Friday, given what the market did today. You know, unless you need all of it immediately, I don't see the point uh, in, in doing that. And I think that's 
where you know you want to talk to someone that walks you and talks you off the ledge, and and, and that's really where financial advisors and the investment intermediaries can add value. It's in times like this. You talk about the retirement income planning as the goal that you want to have enough income from all these different sources to uh, you know have a comfortable lifestyle for a long period of time. Taking into account all these other things you've talked about, as far as longevity and your health and the amount of debt you've got, how can people? plan to make sure they have enough retirement income? I think the first thing that they have to do is to sit down and understand how long retirement might be. You know, there's an antiquated notion that retirement is 10 or 15 years and, and, and that's it. So they only need income for 10 or 15 years. And of course, if they're in good health and they're at retirement already and there's good genes in the family, there's a chance that that could be 25 or 30 years. So, you know, longevity risk, which is what this is called, the uncertainty about how long you're going to live is a very important component of retirement income planning. I think that the most important issue is to sit down and figure out what do you really want in retirement, what are the absolute needs, what are your plans, and to go about financing that. It's really to have a plan. I joke with people that spending money is much, much harder than saving it. It may sound paradoxical. Saving is hard. It's not fun. Spending is fun. But I'm not talking about the fun aspect. I'm talking about how hard it is. People save whatever left over at the end of the month, and then there's not that much left over. Spending is a much more terrifying decision. Should you be pulling out 10% of your portfolio every year, 5% or 2%? And, and that's where sitting down and having a plan and, and thinking about the long term is so important. Uh, one thing we haven't really covered is long-term care insurance. Uh, this is more in the United States, I guess, than Canada. But is that a good tool uh, to protect your assets? You know, I, I think that there's a segment out there that could certainly benefit from long-term care insurance when you actually take a look at what things cost and uh, the cost of nursing homes, which can be in many cases eighty or $90,000 per year. You certainly want to budget for that. I, I think the key is to have a long-term care product that's viable, a long-term care insurance product that's fairly priced where you know exactly what you're going to get and how long you have to pay those premiums. So I, I think we're going to see an evolution of the market. We're going to see better products out there in the long-term care insurance space. But baby boomers will definitely embrace it as they get closer to retirement. You know, it's not just about having income in retirement. It's having dignified income, and long-term care is a big component. As we come to a close, why don't we just kind of sum up uh, the, the problem we have and, and your solution and, and give people a sense of optimism that they can, in fact, uh, you know, create a good retirement income for themselves in, these, in this environment? I, I think that uh, right now the challenge is coping with the volatility that we see around us and the responsibility that's been shifted to individuals. Luckily, luckily, there are many, many financial instruments and financial products out there that help individuals create their own pensions. And I think that that's certainly encouraging message number one. But I think the most encouraging message is to tell people to remember the most valuable asset on their balance sheet is not the house, and it's definitely not the 401k account. It's their human capital. It's worth millions of millions of dollars. That's the most valuable asset class. Manage that with as much effort and energy as you manage the financial capital. And understanding whether in the human capital you're a stock or a bond makes a big difference in how you allocate your financial assets as well. I think, or something in between as well. If what you do is running a hedge fund, uh, then you're definitely going to be not a stock or a bond, but a hedge fund. Make sure your financial capital is invested in something completely different. You work in the pharmaceutical industry, make sure your financial capital is invested in consumer goods. 
You work in natural resources, financial capital should be invested in a completely different industry. It's about recognizing that the industry that you work in is just as big an asset allocation as your financial capital. Very good. Well, it's been fascinating, and thank you so much. Uh, my guest this hour in the Money Answer Show has been Moshe Molesky, uh, whose new book is called Are You a Stock or a Bond? Create Your Own Pension Plan for a Secure Financial Future. Uh, the book is published by the FT Press. Thanks so much for being on the show, Moshe. My pleasure. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. 